This is a Media Lab podcast. Uh, 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 uh. Oh God, Kyle, Kyle, what's going on here? What? I'm training the machine. It's uh, thinking it's going to become the first machine boxer. Haven't I told you something about not being the punching bag? Welcome to my life, Dave. Those are some spindly arms, man. <laughs> what kind of arms is this? The machine of arms now? That's kind of that's pretty frightening. You know, it's weird. It it really wanted me to attach them. So basically, uh, imagine in your mind the little Rock'em Sock'em robots. Um, it's that, but this plaster of Paris. That's all I had at my house is plaster of Paris. I'll have to put up a picture somehow. Somewhere. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, if you could, it, whatever is in your mind, it's better than probably what the reality looks like. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen. This monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the machine. The machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. And my name is Dave. And I'm The Machine. A podcast where a sentient machine forces us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. Today, we're going to be watching the film The Hurricane. Carter is the slave name that was given to my forefathers and was passed on to me. Hurricane is the professional name that I acquired later on in life. One thing I could do, and the only thing, was box. Can you believe that black punk? He thinks he's champion of the world. We're looking for two Negroes in a white car. Any two will do. Look carefully, sir. Are these the two men who shot you? said no. Take another look, sir. Ruben Carter, you are sentenced to be imprisoned for the remainder of your natural life. I'm innocent. So Dave, do you have any history with this movie whatsoever? I don't know. I do or know. Or even like, maybe even like the story of Ruben Carter. No, I mean, I do know it's a, it's a Denzel piece. I cannot concretely say I've watched this before. It's just another one of those movies where I know of it. I know it's supposed to be one of those, the good ones, one of the good ones, but I can't say for certain I've seen it before. And I don't know much. I have not researched Reuben Carter. Try for the rest of this podcast not to say Reuben Steddard because I have made that mistake now a dozen or so times this week when I've told people I've been watching the movie, uh, The Hurricane. I So the, you're going to be telling very clearly that I am a white person because I'll tell you, uh, I was the same way. I didn't know much about this story. I was watching the Oscars. Like, I started watching the Oscars in 97 and now have not missed a year since then uh, because I'm a masochist. So I remember, like, them talking about the story and Reuben Carter being in the audience at that year's Oscars. But honestly, the biggest reference point I have to this story is the Bob Dylan song, which is, like, eight or nine minutes long and kind of tells you, like, literally the whole story of Reuben Carter 
who was still in jail at the point when Dylan made that song in 1970-something, whenever that song came out. So uh, I know the Dylan song quite well and have never seen this movie in my entire life. It also points to how what you are, that you can understand what Bob Dylan is saying when he sings. <laughs> <laughs> you racist. Um, yes, uh, I, I, I do. I'm one of the weirdos who actually likes Bob Dylan's voice. So that says a lot about me, really, uh, unfortunately. It really does. Uh, so let's do this. Let's go maybe find out a little bit more about Reuben Carter then in film form. It's three hours long, Dave. Well, I oh can't lie that I have something better to do. So uh, <laughs> let's true. do this. You thing. only have a family. So like, <laughs> screw that. Let's priorities. go watch a three hour movie. It's all about priorities. Let's go watch this movie. <laughs> I'll go thank some sponsors. Uh, David's going to go and cough his lungs out. And when then we return, we'll be talking about the hurricane. It's not Corona. I love, okay, first of all, love it when people tell me that. Like, I know. <laughs> it's not Corona. I'm sure I'm telling you it's not Corona. <laughs> uh, Thanks. Uh, I've been dealing with a lot of entitled people today, Dave. So it's, Oh, were uh, you at I was at Do you guys wear a face mask? All day long. Fucking I was wearing sweet. it for seven hours. Perfect. And then a uh, guy wants to come into the store. I'm like, great. You can, uh, there, we have this lineup over here. And he's like, well, I need to go in right now. I'm like, great. There's a lineup over here. He's like, yeah, but I, I just want to buy this computer. I just want to give you the cash and go. I'm like, great. There's a lineup over here. And he's like, fine, I'll go buy the Best Buy. I'm like, great. Have a great day. <laughs> I don't know what you want me to say. Uh, well, you know, what you could have told him was that there's a lineup over here. I mean, I, I don't think you got it. The <laughs> Maybe first you didn't get time. it the first three times, I told him. Ah, <laughs> uh, humans. Hi there, everyone. It's just... Kyle here again, letting you know about some of the people and businesses that make this show continue to run. The heat wave seems to be over, but a deep tissue tiredness seems to be invading my very soul. And so I'm recording this in a mm, waking life stupor. So let's talk about some sponsors. Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Park Power is owned by Chris Kozowski, who has a growing and well-deserved reputation for being a guy who cares. If you're in the Edmonton area, you may have seen him around town in his signature bow tie, supporting local causes and boosting local business. He walks the talk with his business. It's why Park Power shares its profits with local charities. As a new customer, you can choose a community partner to receive 10% of the proceeds from your electricity bill, like the CKUA radio network. Visit parkpower.ca slash CKUA to find out more. This week, Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is also brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network. So let's go and listen to one of our other great shows. It's a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy. It's a Conspiracy is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network and happily powered by ATB. 
We are a bi-weekly podcast that aims to discuss selected conspiracy theories, alternative accounts, legends, myths, and more without coloring the topic with our conversation until the very end of the episode. We also feature beer reviews, lame jokes, bad puns, far too many 80s movies references, geek culture, and general nerdery. Our real aim is for fun, inclusive content that doesn't take itself too seriously. You don't have to be blisteringly paranoid of mind control to enjoy a chin wag with your old pals, Greg, Charlie, Andrew, the Irish Madman, and our podcast puppies, Kylo and Ren. <laughs> Dave, how was that for you? It was it was good. It was really uh it was really Denzel, if you know what I mean. I, I have to say, not to spoil the lead here too much, but this is one of those three hour movies that at least for me did not really feel like a three hour movie. It kind of zipped along pretty good. So I was consistently engaged. I was not looking at my watch like, I don't know, let's say message in a bottle. Ugh, I can't <laughs> believe you named it by name. That's like a curse now. You've you've cursed, cursed yourself. Cursed film. Yeah. Uh, let's go through some information, although a spoiler alert, we're going to be doing something a little bit different today. Ooh, so the hurricane changes. was released on December 29th, 1999. So it just squeaked in there for the year 1999. Uh, no other major releases came out that day. Currently, it is rated 7.6 on IMDb. It is rated 74 on Metacritic. And over on Rotten Tomatoes, it is rated 83% with 113 critics weighing in. And 55,622 users give it 87%. It is available on DVD or Blu-ray. And currently, you can only buy or rent it on iTunes in Canada. Its budget was $50 million. It had a very small opening before going nationwide in uh the year 2000. So it opened to $384,000. Domestically, it made $50 million. Internationally, $23 million. So it came in at a total of $73 million. So uh, with inflation, $114 million. Based on the budget and what it made there, I'm going to guess that was kind of seen as a not an outright failure, but kind of middling. It didn't blow away the box office. The plot description is the story of Reuben Hurricane Carter, a boxer wrongly imprisoned for murder, and the people who aided in his fight to prove his innocence. It stars Denzel Washington as Reuben Carter, Vesselis Shannon as Lezra, Deborah Cara Unger as Lisa, and Leah Schreiber as Sam. Now, the machine doesn't like us talking so much about these backstories. It's the machine who didn't like that. To be fair, I don't like anything. So, Dave, you are very kindly, under order of the machine, I should point out very clearly, you did something this week, and we're going to alter how we do this section. Maybe you can uh, fill us in. So, we got the machine's feedback loop told us essentially to shut the fuck up a little bit, but it did actually tell me that I then had to type things onto another computer so wait with your fingers it's all about fingers with this robot wow. right there's a lot yeah, of all about it gets arms now it's fingers i don't know it's disgusting and your fault never forget this is all kyle's fault yeah all my fault moving forward uh we'll just kind of uh breeze over is that the kids mm -hmm. is that still in the parlance we're just gonna probably not <laughs> we're just gonna breeze. I, basically uh, from i understand it the, the the kids nowadays uh basically shorten things so instead of breeze over it's probably like, we're gonna brio 
Yeah, we could you know? brio it. I, although that is an it? Italian pop, I'm pretty sure. Is it really? Yeah, isn't brio a, a soda? I know orangina, but that is the only it had to be pronounced Italian that soda way. that I know. No, that's good. That's orangina? Good. I don't know. <laughs> I smell like orangina all day long. I just oh my god! Point that. When you when you listen to yourself, Kyle, I I hope you understand why I feel like. A do you record child. yourself, Kyle? I do. <laughs> All right, let's talk about this, Kyle. What? How much information is too much information? Uh, I, well, what the machine actually also had us do is uh, create a Patreon account. So what's going to happen is Dave has very kindly, and uh, he would never say this, and I would never say it to his face, but he did an amazing job writing up uh, some backstories to the actors. So if you, we'll leave a link into the description below if you want to see an extended version of this. But I think I, what we really need to see is as far as the actors go, I think we're in some interesting parts of their careers. Cause Denzel, I would say is kind of, well, midway to current day. I don't know how else to say that he definitely was not a new face on the scene. Like he had established himself, but Liev Schreiber, I would say is kind of in the beginning part of his career. Like he was not like the Liev Schreiber that we know today. He was not Ray Donovan yet is basically what I'm trying to say. So uh, let's just kind of Denzel, or as I think you like to call him, Zell. Well, you know, me and Zell go back. We've been, uh, we've been butts. We hang out. We zoom, right? I've got his, I've got his zoom digits. No. Passcode? Yeah, no. I think that would just be a weird conversation having Denzel watching <laughs> on Zoom. Very intense. And I'd be like, I don't know what to say. I, that would literally be the whole thing. I would just clam up because his gravitas, he wouldn't even have to say anything. Yeah. He would just look deep into the camera and everyone would You would faint. like ball your eyes out. I was like, this is an amazing experience. He didn't say a thing. Um, well, I'm just trying <laughs> to what, think. What did you know Denzel from? Like back in 1999, were you- Virtuosity. Did you know Denzel watching it was? <laughs> God. Yeah, I, I threw that out pretty quick. <laughs> the cinematic <Virtuosity>. classic virtuosity <laughs> hey, with uh, Russell Crowe, right? Russell Crowe's breakout Crow? role as a sadistic uh, killer. I, I have trouble um, chronologically listing Denzel's films. I mean, Glory's before that. Glory's great. Yeah. Uh, Glory's great. And you were uh, in Malcolm X by now too. I'm pretty sure. Is it before? Yeah, maybe. I'm yeah, pretty sure. Yeah, before '99. Yeah, because Malcolm I X. really didn't get into Denzel again. Well, this is how white I am. Um, until training day, a couple of years after this came out, like that's really like my introduction to like Denzel Washington. Well, training day is great. And uh, for great. me, that was an exciting, uh, film because it was the first time he was in bad guy Did I use N that he was going to be a bad guy. And, and I was a big Ethan Hawke fan, although that is probably as I'll, uh, write down the uh, beginning of, <laughs> of yeah. the end of pretty Ethan Hawke. Yeah, he looks so strong. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, not that this is an Ethan Hawke podcast, but what a weird career he's had. Anyways, that's he's also an amazing actor. But yeah, uh, he is he when he so wants pretty. to be. Then yeah. he like takes five awful movies that no one wants to watch, and then comes back. Speaking of which, uh, I watched The Courier, <laughs> and uh-huh. it had uh, Gary Oldman in it. So, uh, so about, there you go. Talk about weird careers. Anyways, and I've also seen him. I should say in the uh, Kenneth Branagh uh, Shakespeare movie, Much Ado About Nothing. Denzel Washington is also in that. So definitely I am familiar with his work. Love Denzel Washington. I think he really is one of like the great actors. Um, I'm a big fan of his. Yeah, he's, uh, he's great because um, like many of the great Hollywood actors, uh, and we'll see this with uh, my buddy Leave, is the, the theater background and this connection to acting as a craft yeah. and not celebrity. And I know that's a little unfair to that generation of actors. It's more of a modern issue where uh, 
we're getting a lot more of this uh, crossover of intent and career uh, designs. Sure. But uh, he's he's got it. Whatever it is, he's got it. Leo Schreiber, uh, I, I, it's bad to say, but yeah, I would say that his saber tooth portrayal saber is probably tooth. the. That's how I kind of know. Although he's not Sabretooth in the first X-Men film. I think it was the ones after that he came on board for. Really? I, well, I just call him I'm Sabretooth. pretty sure. Yeah. But yeah. he was Sabretooth for a few of them. So that's how I kind of know who he is. Uh, just quickly on the background of this guy. He's got, oh my gosh. He's got a Some story, demons. man. <laughs> Some demons in his past. Yeah. And, uh, and surprisingly, although it shouldn't be because I don't actually think he's a bad actor. I think he's a great actor. It's just when you're Sabretooth, it's hard to get away from such an iconic role. Mm -hmm. I think he's a pretty like tall and like, yeah, big guy, dude. Yeah. I think it's harder than most people realize to pull off being like a normal guy on film. Some people try and do it like Tom Cruise and he's never going to be like a normal guy. Like, you know what I mean? Uh, where Lee Tribe can almost like blend into the background so well and be like, oh, yeah, this is like some guy run into like a tor- on a Toronto street. And I could totally believe that this is some guy I could run onto a, a street where a lot of actors can't, I don't think, pull it off. They can do big characters and like magical characters, but being small and very intentional with your movements and stuff. I think that's actually a really hard skill to master for film specifically. And you can tell that because anytime you film someone say act natural, everyone doesn't know what to do with their hands <laughs> and they feel like really awkward. Yeah. What, what, how, how am I doing this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I spend uh, most of my, well, not anymore, but many of my energies uh, behind the camera. But I, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I get weird when one's pointing at me because uh, I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. The acting is, is an underrated craft when it's treated as a craft. <laughs> uh, so this was written by uh, Armian Bernstein and Dan Gordon, based on the book The 16th Round by Reuben Hurricane Carter and the book Lazarus and the Hurricane by Sam Chayton and Terry Swinton. Basically, here's the long and short of it. Armian Bernstein has written sporadically, but basically the big ones are Windy City, Naked Hotel, and Grey Lady. But he's much more of a producer. Like He's written some things, but basically a producer to go into his credits and he's got like 60-ish credits underneath the producer. So just in the 2000s, he is responsible for Bring It On, Spy Game, Open Range, Dawn of the Dead, Children of Men, and the TV show Castle. So big name in the producing game. Dan Gordon, on the other hand, has this extensive writing career that started in 1975. But in the 90s, he wrote not just Wyatt Earp, but Surf Ninjas. So go check out Surf Ninjas. Uh, And then the last credit he has on his resume is a story by credit for Rambo Last Blood. Perfect. I mean, if you're going to round that out, you got to end up. Why not? Yeah. Last Blood. And then, of course, directed by Norman Jewison, uh, born July 21st, 1926. He started in TV, uh, making or directing episodes of The Wayne and Schuster Show, Your Hit Parade, and The Judy Garland Show. But uh, and then in the 60s, he would start to make some comedies. And then he kind of switched his focus in the late 60s, would uh, direct the Best Picture winner in the Heat of the Night, which unfortunately he did not win Best Director that year, though. It was one of the very few times, like pre 2000, where it split, where it was a different director in a different movie that won. It went to Mike Nichols for The Graduate. The big ones for Norman Jewison. Fiddler on the Roof, Jesus Christ Superstar, Thomas Crown Affair, Rollerball, the original Rollerball, and Moonstruck. Those are kind of his big ones. This is very much near the end of his career. He would only make two other movies 
after 1999. The last one being The Statement in 2003 uh, that starred Michael Caine. Michael Caine. <laughs> <laughs> we can do our own trip movie if you want to. We That's can just great. go on a road trip. and The first one's good. I didn't, did not watch the subsequent uh, one and a half there's, hours of Michael Caine impersonation. So. There's three other ones if you want to get into there. Um, any love for Norman Jewison? I'm just trying to think of what you uh, listed in his... Uh, I mean, I've heard of all of those movies. I think I've seen at least a few of them, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a name that I recognize. He certainly holds a place in my heart because Jesus Christ Superstar is something that I watch, not necessarily every year, but every couple years uh, around Easter. I thought you were going to go Rollerball, frankly. But, yeah, I uh, watch Rollerball every Easter, actually. <laughs> it's a great movie to throw on with the fam. James Caan, man. He's... Uh, you know, he's rolling around in a ball. It's perfect. If there's ever a metaphor for the resurrection of Christ, it's uh, a rollerball. James Conn. Cyberpunk. Uh, <clears throat> by the way, never watched the remake of Rollerball. It is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life. Different, Yeah, that's for a different episode. Different that's episode. a different episode. So I know you talked about it a little bit, but why don't you go into a little bit more detail? What worked for you in this movie? Why are you positive on it? Yeah, no, it's it's a great movie. Like every Denzel movie, anytime the camera's on him, it's it's captivating because he, yeah, he's got that that smoldering intensity. He comes across, uh, and I think looking through his bio as such a an intelligent actor, right? There's just mm -hmm. something about the way he he works. It's interesting though, just in high, like in reflection, how often he's just Denzel. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's sure. not like uh he'll be appear in a movie you know pantomiming sort of like a something else he's just got that he's just got that uh that power mm -hmm. especially what was interesting is how relevant and cyclical the themes of uh racial mm -hmm. bias are uh, and yeah, how I, I feel like this changed. is going to be maybe a a lengthy conversation we're going to have on this episode. But uh, once again, current events make this seem much more prescient. And not that it wasn't important back in 1999. Well, important, I guess. I don't really like using that word. It was definitely relevant in 1999 and probably even more so here in the year 2020. It's at least it's, it is the same story uh, yeah. over and over again. And when one looks briefly and topically at that history, uh, one that apparently has existed for 400 years in the United States of America. <laughs> yeah. But we won't get into that uh, too much. I thought all of the actors are reasonably good. You know, it's uh, it's a bit awkward, I think, in that, uh, you know, I don't really understand the sort of background story of the three white uh, uh, people living in a, in a house in Toronto, yeah. I technically mean, I flipping out, but it never, it's weird. I just want to bring that up very briefly even by the end of the movie i don't know what they do yeah <laughs> like i literally don't know what their job was like i thought oh they're just educators but i don't think they are like they're researchers or they're also lawyers like i couldn't i literally could not grasp how they met like the character of lesra and brought him back like like what was the relationship actually like there and then when they focus on trying to free hurricanes like so like, how are, who's paying you? Like, what's yeah. going on? Like, I just, I could not grasp, like, how everything like that was working. Not that we had time, but I tried to Wikipedia the accuracy of the story, which is a fascinating uh, research uh, hole, too. Yes. 
who gave you internet access. But there's really no mention of this uh, Toronto triplet group that saved mm. uh, Hurricane Carter, like so directly. But even during the movie, before I'd uh, gone down that rabbit hole, it is kind of ironic, I think, that uh, this movie about freeing this black man wrongfully accused uh, ends up being the responsibility of three mm -hmm. uh, white people who uh, are just lovely souls. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's, that's, that's that is definitely, thing. even again, in the 2020 context, is definitely something that you're hearing more and more pushback for the media that we consume, which is so often black stories are told from the perspective of white people. Um, so whether that's the director here in this case, you know, putting his lens onto this or bringing these characters who are either an amalgamation of or did not actually really exist, <laughs> who are white, they have to frame it to be like, you know what, we have to have a character here that says, hey, not all white people, just to have that said so that you can come buy in and like, oh, okay, some of them are actually good. They have to like couch this, this story of um, oppression with a be like, but there are some good white people. Uh, it's it's weird. Like when you really break that down and see how often that actually has to happen of like, oh, it's this black person story, but told from the white person's perspective. Like even one of the most recent best picture winners, Green Book, was criticized for the exact same thing. It's a black person story, but told from the white person's point of view. This is, as we'll recall, my problem with rom-coms all mm. being, well, the ones that are written by men. And then generally uh, movies that are written by men and how they treat female care. I mean, just even as a baseline. Uh, and then when we get into race, uh, sexuality, identification, it just gets murkier and, and shittier, frankly. Um, but if there's any off-topic good news is that at least in the indie film world, uh, we're starting to see a shift, which is great. Here's my woke card that I guess I have to play on this episode, Dave. But for, there's no reason why I'd be looking at movies from the 70s. But if I was to look at movies from the 70s, uh, you realize, boy, there was not a whole lot of uh, diversity behind the camera <laughs> when you... <laughs> When you try and find movies to talk about uh, just this year, like the year 2020, I have watched at least a dozen or so films, at least directed by women and people of color and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's becoming easier. So I hope it happens more and more often. But uh, it's definitely taking longer than it probably should to to get to that point. I was reading, uh, I think I've referenced it before, but that sociology essentially book, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. But the interesting salient point to this part of the conversation was um, the reflection on culture that uh, Black American experiences, uh, as they're currently identified, essentially start 400 years ago, uh, once the slaves have been, you know, appropriated and, and uh, utilized, yeah. let's say, uh, in that country. And so if you look at the timeline of cultural development, this, let's call it rhetoric, this thing where we wish that this had happened sooner is interesting because in any culture, it takes a long time for these norms to settle. And so it, we keep repeating these little turning points. And it, it is kind of funny watching this movie in 19, not funny is the wrong word, maybe, but uh, sad, perhaps, that in 1999, the exact same issues are happening that are uh, spurring riots. Uh, and they had... Uh, documentary footage in this film from the actual uh yeah from the actual marches which are so eerily similar <laughs> to the george floyd protests including the juxtaposition let's say of the peaceful and the riots of the mm -hmm. police response and ultimately sadly from the essentially lack of uh let's call it a victory at least now uh, that's the other thing that stuck with me and this is not the movie itself is in the epilogue of this film 
we get this feel-good story of how everybody that was a good person won, but there's no mention of what happens to this racial police force, judiciary, yeah, state no, world. Like, was there actually any repercussions for any of these people? Probably not. Yeah, I'm when you Wikipedia, not. it's not there either. And I think that's one thing that seems to be slowly evolving is that even though the ratio of white violence is definitely not uh, appropriately dealt with, uh, at least there are now charges, which is such a breath of fresh air. But it's, that's still interesting too, like literally at the bare minimum is a breath of fresh air. That's well... I, you know, I mean, imagine what happens next for, I mean, never mind in Canada and in the US, of course, but, uh, you know, the First Nations people haven't mm -hmm. even got this far. I mean, you want to talk about other problems. And then sure. once we get into women have a hard enough time, they've got Charter of Rights protections. They have a hard enough time just finding a space that isn't also through the lens of a man. I, this is a bad conversation to have on a podcast. We're going to get in trouble. It's <laughs> the world sucks. And, you know, privileged white males are to blame and heterosexual white males are to blame. And, and it's, so well, it's easy. Well, luckily, none yeah. of those people are involved in the making of this podcast. So that's good. It's um, probably why this podcast exists, Kyle. I, I forced you to come onto this podcast. Um, well, that's the premise. That's, that's the premise. Well, I guess yeah, that's, that's, that's the rich fiction that we have created on this podcast called Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine. What am I even doing here? So um, I guess I'll start off by just saying what I particularly liked at the very, very beginning. And I mean, like literally the very beginning of this movie, there's a there's a message that gets portrayed on there, which is this is based upon a true story. But some things have been like created uh, you know, this is not a completely true story or something like that to that effect. Just quickly, do you think that that was in the theatrical release or do you think that was subsequently mm. put on because of the That's controversy of the content of the film? I don't know. Yeah. That's a good question. You I have no idea. Been. There may be some legal reason that they have to put it there. Regardless, I actually really appreciated that. This is a really weird hill I'll die on. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's, I think it only affects me but it makes me so irrationally angry when the first thing I see is like, this is a true story. And then based they go into the yeah. movie yeah. or this is based on a true story. I'm like, all right. Like yeah. <laughs> the, uh, you're, the only reason you're putting that little statement there is like, this is all true. And yeah. then you can go and tell your friends like this crazy true story I told, even though like half of it is completely made up just to make it cinematic. And it's not the fact that they're making things up. Like I get it. You have to do that to make this a narrative like this is not a documentary or a documentary series we can take the time and like build that up so i have no problem with them fictionalizing things i hate it though when they lean into like but this is 100 percent true that this all happened like it didn't though so i like that they did that it was just like listen we're doing the basic overview of this the bones yeah. the bones of it like this is going to be compressed and like changed and characters are going to be amalgamated it's that just deal with it. And then, uh, as, as I said, at the beginning, it actually took me by surprise because I just in my mind, I was like, this is probably going to be a standard like a uh, biopic where it's going to be, you know, from start to finish. We're going to see him get wrongfully um, accused, go to jail, blah, blah, blah. And it really wasn't that like we kind of start there and then we go back in time and forward in time and then back in time again and then to present day and then we go back again. I think that if maybe this was not as uh, comfortable or as an experienced filmmaker as what Norman Jewison would have been at this point. I feel that could have been a little muddled and like hard to follow, but I think it actually made sense to do it that way. Whereas like, we need to get like really quickly into like wrongfully accused. He's in this car. He's wrongfully accused. He's going to jail. 
Now let's do some backstory. Boom, back in time. And like, we kind of get up to that point. And also, by the way, there's this other character up in Canada. So, I mean, like, I think they did that all really, really well. Really, we just kind of deal with him being in there, almost like going, or a little nuts uh, in, in b- behind bars, but still trying to be like very like, whatever. Actually, you know what? It reminded me of, it reminded me of you, Dave, a lot because it's it, it found, I found myself being like, he almost become like this Buddhist, like, when you're awake, I'm asleep. When you're <laughs> asleep, I'm awake. I'll, you'll never see me break and I'll be doing this. And it's like, when you bend, I'll bend further, whatever he says. Like, it just, it basically, it's just like doing these little mantra things. Now, to now like, we heard your like inner dialogue watching Denzel. That's pretty funny. When you bend, no, um, yeah, they they really play up that yeah, that stoic Buddhist. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's hard to label. Yes, yeah, it it is a but fascinating thing. That thing, but like just being like so pointed, like, hey, I'm going to learn about the the law, and I'm going to try and right. fight this from the inside. And I, I think what was so effective and why Denzel plays this so well, he really is the standout. I think in this movie, you see this character being like, you know, I'm tough. Like I was I was trained on the streets. I saw horrible things happened to the people I was growing up with. My father was not the best father in the world. I went to war. I was trained as a military officer to be kind of, let's face it, an asshole. Became a boxer so I could be an even bigger asshole. And then using that, coming into prison and being like, I'm going to take all this energy. I'm going to get out by my sheer force of will and being like beat down, beat down, beat down, almost to the point of giving up. But like you almost see that, you see that moment where he basically says like, there's no hope for me. I am going to die here in prison. And then realizing, hey, no, I might have one more round in me and like fighting it uh, until you get to that last scene, which I love, which is like, let's go for it. We got this far. Let's do our hail maker and, and see if we if it's enough to get to the get free. Um, so all that really worked for me. I thought that that journey was good. And, you know, I made an exclamation at the beginning about this being a three hour movie. I think it almost needs to be. You need to feel that. He is behind bars for so long for something that he did not do. So to try and get through that quickly, I think would be wrong. You need to feel like him hitting the wall, hitting the wall, hitting the wall. And it's like, is this going to be it? Is this going to be enough to get him out of here? So I think all of that was like super effective for me. I agree on most points. The The thing that stuck out to me a little bit, I, uh, the one is a bit of a critique. The intent at the beginning for sure was to kind of... Uh, structure this thing to show that he is not a good-ish person prior mm-hmm. to having his spiritual awakening at the third or fourth stint, into, like after getting life and life and life. But even in that little uh, bar altercation when he meets his uh, first or wife or whatever, um, he comes off a little too intelligent to play this burly, raging boxing guy. It felt like he was already... Up. So I had a little bit of trouble uh, kind of getting into this idea of uh, a character change for him. It felt like he was kind of, I, we used the parlance, woke from the get-go, which I had a hard mm-hmm. time kind of bringing back. Secondly, I thought it was a little weird. I agree with you. I think the ideas for the movie, not to drag on, but to be full so that we can understand him surviving, essentially getting beat down over and over again you know, persevering uh, until he's uh, he's freed. But his fights are all depicted as first round, just brutal victories. Yeah, which is not the case. Which is yeah. a little weird too, right? Like, and, he, and he's not well, even scratched. Well, especially when you see, I think they even in the movie say what his record was. Yeah. It's like, well, he, lo- what, he, like, he won, I forget, 19, but lost 12 or something. I'm like, oh, well, I mean, that's not like the greatest record yeah. in the world. I, it would have been interesting perhaps to show him as 
you know, like on his way perhaps of, of getting a shot, but getting his ass whipped and always getting back up. I mean, that's become a bit of a trope and a bit of a cliche now. I just rewatched Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is maybe my favorite movie now. Uh, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, that's that's a theme in it. But uh, so that part was a little off for me. And then from a directing perspective, I thought it was a little confusing to put the fight scenes only in black and white, but all of the other... Uh, era specific pasts were in color and it felt a little bit i don't know if it's supposed to be homage to raging bull i don't, I don't know why the decision right. was made uh, it maybe it's supposed to reflect the archival television footage that maybe they based some of these fights I, I again but it was hard for me to kind of when they start doing that uh, temporal shift jump cuts to keep even the fights separate you know at one point he's fighting a black champion at one point he's fighting a white champion it's like you know, how many title shots, how many champions, how many, like, it, it just started getting a little hard mm. in the middle for me to keep up with, uh, you know, like, I think the opening thing he's beating, I can't, I don't know the uh, champion's name, but it's, it's a black fighter. And then it looks like he's arrested that night. But then later they cut to the uh, fight with the white fighter where he's robbed because of racial bias. And it feels like the murder happens that night because they jump to another sort of uh, mm-hmm. depiction of the mur- of the night that he's uh, wrongfully uh, accused. So there were like little things like that. I mean, it doesn't really reflect on the the movie as a whole, but it, it is a little bit weird. And then f- for me, the final resolution, and this is kind of to your description, it felt a little rushed. Uh, so we've suffered and seen him suffer, and it's incredible, and he's got that great almost right Shakespearean uh, little madness in the hole where he's uh, talking to himself and you see you know this psychoanalysis of of his near first emotional break i love the scene where he's telling his wife that she's got to separate because he can't have hope because it'll drive him like that stuff is so powerful and poignant but then at the end after these three white angels show up it's like okay you got a trial had a beautiful moment with the young black man, and now he's he's done. Movie's over. Here's an epilogue. Everybody's high-fiving each other. I mean, that's basically where most of my criticisms happen is actually the supporting characters. Because like I said, Denzel is great in it. And I think, honestly, Vesselis, I think is the actor's name, yeah. uh, does a pretty decent job too. But I think it's them who is the core to this movie. Yes. And to be brutally honest, I think you get rid of all the other characters. I don't think you... Or at the very least, you don't need to dwell on them as much as I think that this film does. Again, I think that goes back to my thinking, like, this feels like it has to couch it in the whiteness a little bit so that we are brought along and being like, hey, there's good white people in the world. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I just didn't really care about their story. They're there to, like, get the ball rolling. I get that. But it's like, it's really still Hurricane and Vasellis' story and how they meet and how they both help each other out of where where they're currently at. Um, I also kind of hate to say this. It's not a big part of the movie, so I can kind of brush it away. But any of the flashbacks where you see Reuben Carter as a young boy, I think all the actors are bad. Like all the kid actors are really, really bad. But they don't, they, they're not there for more than like five minutes. So and it's, it's not a different a, era not a huge too, deal. in yeah. child acting. Like the, Especially the, when you see another movie from 1999, like The Sixth Sense, and like, oh, whoa, kids can actually act. You know, well, that, that, Haley Joel was an anomaly. I mean, it's why that movie worked and many of Shemalamalama's uh, movies actually don't but and this is the thing for me visually it was jarring that that sequence was shot in color uh it is awkward and they throw these weird you know like and it might be from the book but the uh how creepy was the fifth 
I don't know, felt like 15 minutes, but like that three minute thing of the pedophile old white man yeah. stroking Weird, the huh? head. And so you get this. And, and that's the thing too. It's like, is I get, is that in the book? Is that actually verified? Is that why he did it? He doesn't mention that to the police. Like, I don't know. Regardless, it's like, ooh, this is going in a weird turn that I yeah. did not expect this movie to go in. And then the Dan Hedaya, you know, the corrupt, brutal, racist, mm-hmm. singular <laughs> anomaly, you know, like he's like this evil, the devil in this movie. It's weird to kind of concentrate that hatred into one character and have him chase right. Denzel uh, generationally. I can understand perhaps if the person he stabbed as a child was that detective and there could have been, you know, if you want to build a story around something like that, but you know, we're not going to change the story that much. So then you could easily, at least in hindsight, show the racial tension and hate in a town of racially charged white people, which is the experience of all black Americans in the fifties. It wasn't one person who was trying to hang them. It was the entire town. So you could have a police force that are like uh, forcing these. Uh, well, that that's the. I mean, during your research, was it was that person a real person, or was that no. an amalgamation of it people? D- well, at least uh, in the very topical uh, reflection, uh, quote unquote, Wikipedia, uh, yeah. singular names don't appear. You know, it's it's right. not about a single. Uh, I don't know, sergeant, detective, and perhaps chief. Uh, by the end of the film, that's targeting him uh, and victimizing him specifically. I think. You know, and I think this is why the cause is so powerful. This is systematic racism. There's no way Ruben Carr is the only black man that no, went to jail in that era. Honestly, uh, like that is something that has probably changed in the last 20 years. Like if I was to go into production now, if you know you can make a movie right now, if I was to go into production right now, I would think that that's how the story would fundamentally change. It's not one police officer. It's every police officer. Right. And that's what the insurmountable thing is is that they've made people lie they've made people turn testimony uh they're like disappeared other people because they do not like you (laughs) and that's really hard to fight against and again whether it was one judge or they had to go through a few different courts or whatever it happens to be that they like shrunk down that courtroom scene at least you feel like this uh even more of an expression of like finally like he had to fight through everything to to get here i also like there there's a little bit of meta narrative i like uh, talking about meta narratives i talking about norman jewison i did like how the judge was played by rod steiger who was in in the heat of the night as the racist cop so i like that there's this like kind of like neat little bookends to like the major points of his career where you start with racist cop and then same actor playing like kindly old judge is like let's hear it i'm going to allow this and then like basically goes from there yeah uh, I mean, I didn't know that particular fact, but like bringing it up that way, I often wonder kind of like, I can't remember what that uh, conspiracy theory principle is where we just connect too many dots, but I wonder if there's intent. It's called thing. English degrees, Dave. <laughs> it's like the Farsi <laughs> principle or something. I can't remember what it's called, but is that uh, an intent to bookend his treaties on uh, mm. you know white privilege or was he just friends with this actor who looks like right, a judge yeah, now, yeah. right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, he looks like a judge. If you had to draw a caricature of a judge in the 1980s, it's going to be a, a bulldog, <laughs> right, old right. bald man. It's going to be white, right? Uh, and you need <laughs> yeah. someone who looks like him because there needs to be this tension in the scene where you're not sure if he's going to give a shit, right? Mm-hmm. And Denzel's great little soliloquy uh, appealing to justice rather than the law. Uh, I mean, I don't even know if that really happened, but it's a great little thing to push 
this otherwise <laughs> racist looking old man uh, to examine himself. Because, you know, at the beginning of that trial, you, you sir, you sir look like a racist. You're hired. <laughs> I say that a lot. Uh, I say that yeah. a lot. No. Uh, yeah. But all of that to say, I mean, by the end of the movie, it's it's great. I, I didn't really feel like I think you brought up in the movie that I had lost three hours of my life. I felt like I was uh, involved in the mm-hmm. whole story. Um, I could see why uh, ultimately, A, this was released in December 29th because they're definitely Oscar baiting and uh, B, that Denzel would get nominated for this movie because uh, mm-hmm. he's incredible in it. Did not win, but uh, he who was won, definitely nominated. Who won that for that one? that year uh, i believe it was michael kane for the cider house rules really i'm pretty sure which um who knows if we're gonna be able to watch that movie but i've been told by a lot of people that it is uh not good so <laughs> i don't know we'll see yeah if you want to talk about uh a white privilege a patriarchy up, yeah. you're gonna give uh michael kane an oscar and denzel for this film uh gets the standby that's a fascinating well, thought i mean I am 100% convinced that if this was not Denzel Washington, my eyes were rolled so far up into the back of my head. But it somehow moved me where he says, like, hate me, hate put me in prison. Love is going to bust me out, yeah, which man. would be like, like, like the poll quote on the poster. But it's like, I don't know that just it's all great and worked for me 100%. Some things I wrote down while watching this, which is. It seemed like every character actor from The Sopranos was in like the first 10 minutes of this movie. I'm like, <laughs> what is going on? What is happening? It was like they were in this movie and then they all got cast for The Sopranos later on in that year when it debuted. Anyways, you know how I knew this was Toronto they were filming in? They were drinking bagged milk. And I was like, oh, man, this is, this is Toronto. I love that. Can was... you explain the whole bagged milk thing? Uh, out east? I, you know, can you explain why you don't? put milk in bags out west no i think it's only ontario i i remember reading it as something to do with uh who knows maybe a cow lobby it wasn't even the 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 milkers it was the cows they got together and they're just like look <laughs> it comes from an udder right it's in a bag well, yeah, to they, start you know, they basically held a vote they unionized <laughs> all those in favor moo mm-hmm. i'll tell you this uh, i prefer cartons when you use bagged milk if you do it correctly it's fine Mm-hmm. You make one mistake on the cut or the placement into the jug, and uh, it's a messy life. It's, uh, yeah, things happen with bags. I don't have time for that. I just don't have time for that. <laughs> just give me my good old carton, show me the lost kid I don't care about, and uh, I'll drink my milk. I'll drink my cow juice. It might be cheaper to own milk in Ontario. I don't remember, actually, the uh, unit What do you mean price. cheaper to own milk? You know, like uh, like you, to buy milk—is that what you mean? You pay uh, you pay more for the carton packaging. That might be part of it too. Oh, okay. Yeah. I sorry. It's so you phrase it in such a weird way. <laughs> There's like you know, like how you own a house. It's like when you own milk. I'm like, what do you mean when you own milk? I have to buy a share in this local co-op in order to get milk delivered to my house. You know, as somebody who comes from a farm town, I'm surprised you don't owe a milk own a milking cow. Have you have you ever milked a cow? No, I've never touched uh, the teat. Of another, yeah. Um, I have just FYI, I have I have milked a cow before. And how did that go? It got messy. Too. <laughs> was, it, was it enjoyable for both for both you and the cow? Did the she said she loved it? So <laughs> I mean, I can only go by what they what they told me. You got a good stream. You got a good thick stream. I, I will tell you this: we have also barn cats, and boy, do they come out of the woodwork when you start milking cows. Because like, Ooh, can I get some? Can I get some? <laughs> I was also going to tell you, too, like I, I mentioned the Bob Dylan song, but it does kind of form the backbone of this movie. There's like three or four separate times that it plays like a verse of what's going on, which in a way is like a little like 
too on the nose for me in some ways yeah. but like i like the song too so it was kind of like a pro and con at the same time did you catch when he's in speaking of malcolm x i i i couldn't be wrong but i felt like the malcolm x poster was actually of denzel washington oh really oh, i don't know malcolm x. i didn't see because <laughs> i've been watching some malcolm x uh debates and interviews and i just yeah. i don't know when it panned and it's very like it's not meant to be something in the foreground of that shot but my immediate intuition was like wait i think that's denzel as malcolm x but uh, i didn't that'd be I cool if it was it. my favorite shot although there were a couple was the pan out as the visitors are leaving the first time in the uh mm. and it's only black in my inmates turning yes. over their shoulder staring at the camera that was uh that's a pretty powerful moment there too. Yeah, I think this movie is at its best when it doesn't try to become like super didactic in what it's trying to say. When it just lets the scenes play out and like visually, hey, like you should be noticing what's going on. One of my favorite ones, honestly, was like when he's at the bar and there's like, I think that white reporter is talking to him and he's like, why aren't you down at the protests? It's like, oh, you're right. I should go. You want to come? Yeah. And they're like the white reporter, blah, 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 blah. Like he can't like, why would I go there type of thing? So I think that when it was like pointed like that, where it's not like being like beating overhead super, super much. It's uh that was one of that's best. I think that was also a great little thing that, that plays well into right now with all of the woke shaming that we live in. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I love the sarcastic reply where it's like, well, go well, I could probably kill four of them before they get me. Right. And it's, yeah. it's like this, it was, a, I, I thought it was a great little, uh, moment where he's, uh, He's kind of aware of what's going around on a on a wider scale. Um, mm-hmm. It does show a little bit of his uh, self interest too. But but that, I thought that was kind of a fa- the whole thing played really interesting for me. It made me think a lot. <laughs> uh, I guess uh, I mean I started this off by saying I like that little message at the beginning. But do you think that it does lose anything at all if they are making up certain things to fit the narrative that they want to project to you? Like does that matter to you? I guess at the end of the day. Well. That becomes more of a academic or philosophical discussion about movies in general. Mm-hmm. So should a movie, I mean, I talk about this a lot uh, or in my head about photography, but should a movie exist for the audience, uh, for the story or for the director? And and they're not necessarily a separate Venn diagram circles, but you know, a movie like this where the base narrative being uh, this true example of you know racial bias, suffering, 20 30 lost years uh, do you need to tell that story in a way that a white a predominantly white paying audience is gonna give a shit about uh and in that case do you need to make uh, these these uh, edits to reality uh to keep it relevant mm-hmm. or do you go the other way and uh and try to like you brought up make it a documentary series um or play to a, a niche audience an indie audience although with a 50 million dollar budget uh, I mean, I think we can imply that the studio has a big say too, um, to ensure that they're trying to get at least fifty million dollars back. Uh, Oscar winning, uh, sorry, Oscar nominating performances aside, I think there's a lot of texture to that question. I, I don't know if I want to just watch this movie for the sake. If you're gonna, if listeners are wanting to watch this movie for the sake of just watching a good movie, then, then it's fine. But if you're watching it with all of, especially right now with all of the deeper uh, sociological contexts. Uh, yeah, it it might be a little hypocritical almost. Uh, the whole movie, if you do the background story of actually uh, the hurricane, it's uh, it's a lot more real than in the movie. He's not 
you know, he's not a white knight. Yeah, pardon no, the no. expression. Yeah, he's he's got quite a troubled life uh, before he ends up in prison. It's it's kind of a fascinating thing about reality. It's not meant to actually be like a movie, is it, Kyle? Yeah. That's why we like <laughs> well, movies so yeah, much. I mean, I mean, that's the thing. It's like I, when it, when it gets into these like life stories, trying to shove it into like a single film is almost like impossible. And um, I'm normally somewhat negative on, or normally pretty negative on biopics anyways it's like i would rather you make a four episode miniseries just so you can go in and provide that context uh rather than try and like compress it down into something that's a little bit more palatable but again that's just me that also doesn't bring back the money to the investors and stuff like that either that's the thing you know the problem in in the capitalist world we live in kyle is that uh not only do you only get the big budget for features that they project will get you a big return, but uh, I remember a long time ago, I was talking to a friend about uh, downloading movies illegally because I used to torrent and all that stuff. I don't know if it's still called torrenting, but what happened was uh, I got caught. So I was, uh, I was downloading, I think I had a, a modified PS2. So I was downloading games and movies and all this stuff. And I was trying to get... Uh, Okami, that was a pretty cool game back in the day. For all the people that are uh, old, that's that's a pretty cool, you know, uh, game. But while it was taking so long, I downloaded Lego Star Wars, I think, or some something Jesus. that had to do okay. with Disney or, or Star Wars. And the moment that fucking game downloaded, I got an email from Lucasfilms through my internet's, uh, my ISP, saying that I had been in breach and all this stuff. And I made up, you know, I was frightened. So I made up some story about somebody else. You know, then you called up your ISP and said, you fucking narc. And then <laughs> slammed um, the phone down. So then I took uh, this moral position, as you know, I always do. And uh, several years later, I was talking to a friend who uh, still torrented. And I was like, you know, you know, the classic argument, like if you get this for free, the artists don't get any money. And then he goes, well, you know, we, we go to the concerts because they get more money from the concert than they do from the record label. And I said, when's the last time you went to a concert? <laughs> you went to a concert, right? Yeah. So, you know, ideally we can make documentaries, but when's the last time people went and paid for a documentary? I don't. Yeah, exactly. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I, unless, unless, literally, unless your name was uh, Michael Moore in the year 2003 or whenever that came and out. Like nobody, one literally or two. nobody. Yeah. He had one yeah. or two and then nobody gave a shit about his movies after that, right? right? That's what I mean. Like you have to be like a huge provocateur or you do your murder mystery or your Tiger King thing on Netflix and hopefully you get lightning in a bottle. Well, that's the thing though. It's like, if it's not a Netflix, who's going to theater to watch Tiger yeah. King? Nobody. No one. No one. Yeah. That movie doesn't get a distribution at all. It doesn't even get made. Well, and again, that would be a two hour version of Tiger King. Like right. no one's going to yeah. go and see that. Starring, right? the, well, right. if it was Tom Cruise, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> he's like tiger cruise is the tiger king he's like actually wrestling a tiger well he would i was gonna say he would literally go in and wrestle tigers and then jump out of a plane and be like i'm crazy yeah. and like that's how he would look he could pull off a mullet though i'll tell you that could. if anybody could we're done here the machine has told us that we do need to uh to wrap up here uh i guess before we get into some of our other stuff we we watched this uh because the machine told us to do you think anyone in 20 more years from now is actually going to come back and watch this movie? Yeah. I, it's cyclical because we're not at the stage where it doesn't matter. And whether the directing style and some of these little nuances we pick up now, whether we imply too much with our current experiences, you can show this movie 
to any of the、mm-hmm. woke culture, and people will still get upset because when they realize that the exact same things we're going through right now that seem so revolutionary have not only been happening 20 years ago, but 20 years before that, and 20 years before that, like some of the archival footage of civil rights protesters, like 50s, 30s, like Kyle, it's、uh, mm-hmm. this, this type of movie will always have、uh, cultural relevance until we don't see color. And fuck, is that going to happen? No. Although,、uh, what I've been reading is that that in itself is stupid to not see color. We should be celebrating people's backgrounds. But I think you're right insofar as, especially with Denzel being still considered cool. I, at least I, that's my sense is that Denzel is still conceived to be cool.、Uh, I think that there is going to be an appetite for this movie. You're right, it's cyclical. I, my, my sense is because it already is starting to feel a little bit.、Um, Cute as far as like the filmmaking style, like it's like, oh, that's not, that's charming, you know, the filmmaking style. This is not how this movie would look if it was made today. Not that it can be, of course, it was made 20 years ago, but I feel like it's like in 1999, how we looked at films from like the early 70s. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool, I guess. Um, is what it's gonna feel like in another 20 years, like, oh, okay, like, oh, well, that's old, that's an old film I'm looking at just because of how the shots are made. It's not AR. Yeah. yeah, correct. It's,、uh, I can't smell the musk that's coming <laughs> off from the people. So,、oh, this is bullshit.、Note. I don't want to watch it.、Um, I mean, they don't do solitary confinement anymore because people go insane. But、uh, mm-hmm. I felt like that was actually, I, I didn't actually look this up, but I did a trip to Alcatraz、uh, when I was in San Francisco,、mm. maybe 10, 15 years ago. Man, fuck, man. If you want to, like, there are so many different places in the world where you get that visceral experience, but Alcatraz is a really, really creepy one. And I couldn't help、right. but feel like, even though American. The penal system、uh, in America are,、uh, are always depicted this way because their prisons are fucking disgusting.、Um, it gave me this、uh, Alcatraz moment. There's just so much concrete and so much hell.、Uh, it reminded me of walking through that、uh, prison and seeing the same thing, like these、uh, group gates and these fucking disgusting, I don't know what they were, like three by three cells. And, yeah.、Um, It's a frightening experience to go. I mean, jail in any country is not going to be any joke, but the American depiction of prison is、uh, harrowing. Can I use that word? Is that, that's what kids yeah, still say,、can. right? Yeah. Hashtag, can we hashtag harrowing? Hashtag harrowing. <laughs> <laughs> They call it hair now. It's like, that's so hair. Yeah. <laughs>、um, let's get into our rating here. This is, of course, where we rate the movie out of five each and then you know, average it together to put onto our big old list that you can go find on our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. KDVSTM is also where you can、uh, see us on Twitter or Instagram. And if you ever want to send us an email, please do. You can do that at the longest email address ever made, which is Kyle and Dave VS the machine at gmail.com. Dave, out of five, what would you rate the hurricane? All of our cultural discussion aside, I'm just trying to think. I, I'm, I'm hovering between. Are you clicking a pen over there? Yeah, can you hear it? I can. <laughs> It's not even、you、clicking. You son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to ruin this recording. To, to fully full,、uh, fill in people is like the first time I met Dave, we recorded a podcast and、uh, he clicked a pen through the entire thing and they didn't pick up on it somehow. And then that's all you could hear in that recording is click, click, click. It was a pretty good conversation for. for- First podcast, too, and、uh, the、That's、recording、right. is not a reflection of Media Lab YYC. We'll just how, how you got Denzel to be on that first show, I, I'll never know. But. <laughs> well, me and Zell go way back. <clears throat> <clears throat> Anyways, out of five, what would you rate the hurricane? I'm hovering between a 3.5 and a 4. You know, I'm going to go for a 4 just because I love、oh. Denzel. I don't know.、Uh, well, I also. 
gave it a four. Oh, shit. So uh, <laughs> let's no, we're just, supposed uh, to disagree more. Why can't we be more disagreeable? We'll just we'll just keep watching South Park. You you woke bitch. Uh, this is a one <laughs> if I've ever seen one. No. Um, okay. So I mean, it's tied with a bunch of stuff here. Then is what that means. So we have to figure this out. Uh, what it's tied with is Toy Story two, Ten Things I Hate About You, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Go. Those are the films that it's that's tied with. What do you what are you sensing there? I did that from top to bottom. So you feel it fits in between a couple of those movies bottom top no, i think it's you know what i think it's the top of that group i i would probably uh, you know it's hard to rewatch dramas of this nature but i would mm-hmm. put it above toy story 2 in my mind so i think it has more relevance than than that list depending on the day i'd flip that around but i'm I, i'm not <laughs> so incensed that i would uh i'm going to disagree with intuition? that so let's do that like, would you put something else in front of it or would you are you saying that you would put it at the bottom of the list no what i'm saying is that i don't know if i put it above toy story 2 or below toy story 2 it just depends on the the day day. yeah i mean to to be fair to this list that we're creating i think i fluctuate every week between like favorite versus best Mm. movies sometimes because by far i would probably watch 10 things i hate about you more times than i'll ever probably watch the hurricane ever again in my life but I love the hurricane. It's a great film. So I have to, you know, put it in here the way that I see fit. That being said, that means that the hurricane is going to enter our list at the number seven position. So if you want to see what our top 10 is looking like right now, go over onto our letterbox page. Uh, Dave, let's find out what we are doing next week. Let me push this button. Oh, Dave, we're doing another foreign film. Well, international film, I guess, is the more PC term nowadays. We're going to be watching Run, Lola, Run next oh, week. Oh, sweet. That's sweet. a great movie. Yeah. I've seen that now. I've seen that countless times. So Me too. Although, when's the last time you watched it? A decade ago, probably. Yeah. yeah. I hope it holds up because- I uh, watched it a ton during university. Like, I've watched it multiple times. It's university. such a university. <laughs> it's a very university <laughs> yeah, film. Yeah. Red hair girl. She's cool. <laughs> And, uh, Told from three multiple perspectives. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's like a bit it's of a like trope. you know what it is. Now that I've been rewatching Kurosawa, this is basically like my first Rashomon movie that I'm watching. Three perspectives. How could you totally think about that thing? And he's just ripping off somebody from like 30, 40 well, years before that. Is, we'll find out. Is he ripping off? Is it is it an homage? Is it a new take? There's so many well, different ways. To- I have heard that it is a ripoff if the movie's in color, but if it's in black and white, then it's an homage. That's the <laughs> maybe that's why Norman Jewison uh, left the yeah, three right. boxing scenes in black and white just that's to right. settle the debate. Well, talking about that, I'm just gonna put on these gloves here again. I'm gonna just keep sparring on our middleweight champion here. Just keep it. Just keep it above the belt, robot. Just keep it above <laughs> the belt. <laughs> Oh. It's trying to punch me in the face. 